Matthew chapter 3. If you need a Bible, we have them in the back in the middle section. Our gift to you, please take that. Matthew chapter 3, we've been in a, in a series called Who is Jesus? Looking at the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. We kind of did Matthew out of order. We did Sermon on the Mount, when we're going back and starting over, and then we're going to take chunks, kind of like we're doing right here, kind of identify the theme of the chunk, preach through it, and then maybe take a break and then jump back into Matthew. So after a while, we'll work our way through Matthew. And right now, we're looking at these first four chapters, asking that question, who is Jesus? And, and here's our text this morning, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Story of John the Baptist. And here's what God's word says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus, this is your word. We want to receive it as such. A word with all authority, a word that can speak to our moment right now. And we pray that it would, that we would hear your voice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I wanna ask you this morning, what would it take to make you change your life? What would it take to make you totally change your life? Maybe there's some stories we look at from the outside and we're unable to grasp why a person would not change their life. We see someone clearly headed on a trajectory that is just destruction and debauchery and we think, Hello, what is so hard about changing your life? Maybe we assume life change can be kind of easy. But sometimes we hear a story about life change where we would have thought it was impossible and we're amazed. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis causes you to change your life. And maybe it's not even that serious one. My dad right now, he was over yesterday, we were watching a football game and we made some football game type food, i.e. not healthy type food. And he's trying to figure out what he's gonna eat. And he texted beforehand and said, can I bring, can, can mom and I bring a salad? I was like, I guess. I'm not eating it. <laughs> I did, I had a little, and it was after we talked about why he's eating healthier that I was like, yeah, I'll do a bowl of salad, I guess. And, and you know, uh, I've always joked, I have my dad's jeans. One day I'm gonna be wearing them as well. And so uh, he, he's had some tests done and it's nothing really serious. It's like, hey, we just wanna, we're gonna do a stress test, put you on the treadmill and you know, just look at cholesterol stuff. So he's like, man, I'm not doing any of that. So he makes a bowl of chili and I'm like, hey, we've got cheese and like sour cream and he's like, oh, that's nice. And I was like, oh, you're not even doing, like I don't even know what healthy is, the level he's on right now. And he's totally changed the way he's eating just in the last couple months. But what would it take to make you totally change your life? I think the truth is we're far more entrenched in our way of living than we might imagine. 
changing every aspect of our life is no simple task, as you might know. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you're here this morning as a sort of last resort. Like, I've, I've tried it all, and my life doesn't seem to be changing. But our habits and our addictions and our patterns of living run deep. But in this text this morning, John the Baptist makes some kind of claim that he says demands life change. That's the word repentance. John the Baptist is making a claim. He's proclaiming a very short message. And he's saying the only proper response to this message is repentance, total life change. What does that mean for us? What kind of message could cause us to change our lives? What would it take to make you change your life? Is it what John the Baptist is gonna hold up for us this morning? This morning, we're gonna see a very simple, uh, I'm gonna make a very simple claim to you. Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes lives. I think we know that. I think maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've heard that in a cheesy kind of way, a canned kind of way from church, but Jesus changes lives. And we're gonna see this text in three movements. First, we're gonna see an urgent message. We're gonna see then an honest inspection and finally a spiritual renewal. First, let's look at the urgent message in the first six verses. We're reading about John the Baptist. Now, he starts off telling us what his message was. Short, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You could break that down and say repent is the action. He's telling people to do that. Repent. Why? Because God's kingdom is at hand. It is near. It is here now. But when we see John and his message, we see pretty quickly an Old Testament quote. Now, you know from the first few chapters of Matthew, this is what Matthew is doing. He's situating the story of Jesus with an Old Testament context. The Old Testament context for John the Baptist is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 was giving the Old Testament expectation for a forerunner, someone coming before, who would prepare the way for God himself. Someone who would come and proclaim, comfort, comfort my people. A voice of one in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, many Old Testament prophets had this kind of a message. Prophets, we don't need to think uh, future predictor. We need to think truth teller. We need to think of the prophets as those people who would look back at God's law and God's ways and God's character, and he would call God's people to act in a certain way in light of it. Now, we think of future when we think of prophet because part of what the prophets would do is they would point ahead to this time when the day of the Lord would come. Hey, you're, this is what God has done for us, how he's called us to live. Right now, you're not living that way, and you need to get your life right because one day, God's gonna show up. And it's gonna be pretty brutal when he does. Their message was future-oriented because they were saying one day, you need to be ready for when God comes. And so John is picking up the tradition of the prophets after 400 years of silence. And the message that John is bringing, it's not that God's kingdom is gonna come one day, but that God's kingdom has come now. This is John's urgent message. The kingdom of God is here now. Now when we hear kingdom, what we need to think is the kingship, the rule and reign of God. God's rule is here now. We know from Isaiah chapter two what happens when God shows up. Listen with me to some of Isaiah chapter two. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east. That's code for bad. 
and fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty or prideful looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. And that refrain gets repeated a couple more times in Isaiah chapter two. In other words, God is going to come and everything else that is exalted when God comes will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So to say the rule and reign of God has arrived is to say it's the time for God alone to be exalted. Now for a first century Jew, this phrase would have brought out some pretty deep longings. We talked about this last week and a little bit uh, in the previous weeks that they would have considered themselves to still be in exile in a way. Even though they were in the land, they were still under foreign rule. So when they heard about God's kingdom coming, they would have been longing for God to assert his authority over everything that opposed to his will. They would have longed for the yoke of Roman oppression to be broken. They would have heard God's kingdom is here. Oh my goodness, he's gonna overthrow Herod. He's gonna overthrow Rome. He's gonna overthrow, see, he's gonna overthrow everybody that's opposing God's will and we're gonna be restored again. They would have longed for God's kingdom to come. And this is exactly why John's message was so urgent. His wild lifestyle was meant to kind of complement his wild message. And John's res- response to the message of the kingdom is here is very simple. Repent. Don't just change your mind, but actually a total life transformation is what John called for. His, mes- his message was urgent and it was simple. The king is here, so you better turn your life around. So I wonder for us today, do you have any sense of urgency when you hear the message of Jesus? I wonder what kind of sense of urgency they had. Or was there just, did there become a sense in the Jewish people of, supposedly he's gonna come, like one day. I mean, he he claims he's gonna come. Like I feel like that sometimes about Christ returning and making everything right. It's like, I supposedly, yeah. And there's not much of a sense of urgency. I wonder if you have a sense of urgency. I wonder if we do. For some of us, we don't have any urgency at all. We're cool to just float along through life. And maybe our faith is totally past-oriented or totally future-oriented, and then this moment, we fail to see what John was preaching, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So is there any urgency for you when you hear that God is here? Do you have any urgency to gather with God's people? Do you have any urgency to be a person of this book? Do you have any urgency to spend time with God in prayer? Do you have an urgency to experience God's presence? I think for me, maybe that answer is no more times than not. Do I have an urgency to do it? I'll tell you the kind of people that do have an urgency for all those things though. It's people who recognize their own need. A a deathly sick person is quite urgent to find a cure and meet the doctor. Healthy person, not so urgent. 
I, I don't feel very urgent to change my lifestyle right now of, of eating and my health, although I probably should because there might be problems down the road, but right now it's not pressing. It doesn't feel urgent, but have someone with a diagnosis come down tomorrow on the health of their heart or their body, or hey, if you don't change and lose a certain amount of weight, then there's gonna be massive problems for you in the near future. Oh, I have a different sense of urgency now. The kind of people who have a sense of urgency are those who are desperate for healing, those who are desperate for redemption, for change, and for forgiveness. But what I wanna end this talk on urgency is to say this, even if we have urgency, how can we turn our lives around? Even if we have urgency, how can we turn our lives around? Urgency doesn't seem to change me, always. Maybe it's the first ingredient, but John's proclaiming an urgent message, but as we'll see in just a second, an urgent message is not enough to change someone's life, which leads us to the next point, an honest inspection. It says in verse seven that he recognized Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Important language there. They were not coming to be baptized. Every scholar I read this week picked apart the Greek to say there's nothing that makes us think they were coming to respond positively. They were probably coming to assess a threat. What's this Jew doing gathering these large crowds proclaiming something about God's kingdom and he's not a Pharisee and he's not a, he's not a religious leader? What's going on here? So the text makes it clear they were coming to observe. They wanted to see what was going on. They wanted to assess the kind of message he was preaching and John wastes no time addressing them when they showed up to his baptism. And in verse nine, he gets to the meat of his message. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. If God wanted to, he could turn rocks into children of Abraham. Their genealogy would have been a point of pride for them that they were a part of the Jewish people, meant that they were safe with God. They were on the right side of the kingdom. But John is showing them that the new kingdom community is not only limited to Jews, and the Jews who do belong to it are not there only because of their genealogy. No, John gives them something else to evaluate their lives by. Hey, you don't have a sense of urgency? Let's take an honest inspection of your life for a second. Instead of presuming on your genealogy, your parents and your parents' parents, and go on down the line, why don't we observe the fruit of your life, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? John's giving them another deeper way to determine whether or not they'll be in God's kingdom. He's telling them to bear fruit by keeping on repenting. That's a tough, honest inspection. And he's inviting them to take that honest inspection because their fruitfulness or their fruitlessness is what's truly gonna show the reality of their relationship with God. He says a fruitless tree is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. There are, that, and that's part of what drives John's urgency. There are dire and eternal consequences to whether or not we receive Jesus. But what's interesting about this exchange is that John wants to see fruit from religious people. Now hold on with me, because if we ask you to name fruit in your life, you might name religious activities. Like I, I'm, I'm at church, I, even, I give, like I try to read this thing. So it's interesting how he's, he's not asking to see fruit from people who are just wild pagan sinners. He's asking to see fruit from religious people who would probably go, I don't have that much sin in my life. 
But you do know there's a difference between religious activity and spiritual fruit, right? Have we had this talk before? <laughs> there's a difference between religious activity and spiritual fruit. Religious activities are the heartless habits that we do in order to gain a good relationship with God. That's religious activity. Heartless habits. No desire. And it's done in order to gain some sort of relationship with God. Or to maintain it, to think, if I don't do this, God, I've got to do this in order for God to keep liking me and keep loving me. Spiritual fruit is how we live because we already have a good relationship with God. See, religious activity is a resume full of works that you use to convince yourself and others that you deserve what you got in your relationship with God. It's a resume, religious resume here. But spiritual fruit is an overflow of your love relationship with God. But we, we talk a lot at Shalford about the kindness and goodness and love of Jesus, but there's also a reality in which if Jesus has come to take up residence in us and we are followers of him, our lives will look different. And I think Jamie hit on earlier when she said, it, I try so hard to bring the change myself, but Jesus, it's you that brings the change. And the reality is we can all tell when the change is from us or from Jesus. We can tell, right? The truth is that many of us will claim the name of Christ while bearing no marks of being touched by him. Does your life bear any kind of fruit? I mean, let's take the honest inspection here. Let's take an honest inspection like what John asked them to do. Hey, you're coming. You're here this morning. We're observing Jesus, we're observing the worship, we're observing the prayers, we're observing the word, we're, we're gonna observe the Lord's table in a minute, but what does the fruit of your life say? What are you depending on to determine whether or not you're in God's kingdom? An honest inspection is kind of like a good home inspection. It's gonna tell you the truth about whether or not a home is really worth moving into, whether or not it's worth buying, and it'll get beyond the externals. I am not the one to do a home inspection at all. But a good home inspection will get beyond the external. It'll get into the walls and the foundations and all the inner parts of the home. It'll know to look for things that you might not know to look for, especially in maybe the area your house is built in, the material it's built with. It'll know um, the year it was built. Oh, I need to look for these kind of things. So that means the, uh, you, the AC unit's a certain age, or let me look at how old all these other things are, and that might be an indicator of Man, some of this stuff's gonna need to get fixed soon if you move into this home. Just know that if you buy it. And just like a poorly built home is not gonna stand, like Jesus told us in Matthew 7, he wants us to take that kind of home inspection of our lives. I mean, how are the guts? How are the, the inner parts of the home of our lives? How's the foundation? The truth is, just like Matthew 7 says, that there's no other lasting foundation. We need to take an honest inspection. What are you depending on for your foundation to stand before God? But you know, we ended that part about the urgent message and said, you know, urgency alone is not good enough to change me. And, and the reality about an honest inspection, it, it's not either. Taking an honest inspection of your life and being well aware of how, how much you fall short or how much need you're in, that's not enough to change you. You can be quite self-aware and still be separated from Jesus, still be found to be outside of, I mean, how, what kind of self-awareness do you think Judas had following Jesus? 
I'd say pretty good. I mean, there was something that captivated Judas enough to want to follow Jesus. But self-awareness and honest inspection by itself is not enough to change us, which leads us to the last point here in verses 11 and 12, where we see a spiritual renewal. A spiritual renewal. This is our third and last point this morning. This is John, beginning in verse 11, comparing the two baptisms of his and Jesus. He compares his ministry with the mightier one who's going to come after him. And John's baptism is with water, which is outward, and it emphasizes repentance, a change of action. But the baptism of this mighty one, Jesus, who we know it is, this other baptism will be of spirit and fire. So while John's baptism is primarily outward, the baptism of the spirit and fire will be primarily inward. Now there's an Old Testament expectation for a time when God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Isaiah 32 and 44, Ezekiel 36 talks about this. Joel chapter three, which is the part that's quoted there uh, in Acts two when the spirit comes. There was an expectation of this time when God's gonna pour out his spirit on all flesh and it's interesting to note that he says uh, in the Old Testament, who is pouring out the spirit? God. In the New Testament here, John the Baptist says, who's going to pour out the Spirit? This Messiah. Which means they fully believe Jesus is God. Which is the second time in this passage a little uh, subtle allusion to Jesus being God has been made because remember the forerunner came before who? God. But in this passage, the forerunner is coming before Jesus. So it must mean that Jesus is God. And as Jesus comes, he comes to pour out the Spirit, to baptize in the Spirit. Now, this is not something that's different or separate from salvation. Like you get saved, you come to know Jesus, and then you better start praying for some sort of Holy Spirit baptism. I believe a baptism of the Spirit is synonymous with your salvation. It is the time you receive Christ, he pours his Spirit into you, and you now bear his presence everywhere you go. I think this is actually the key to the whole passage because you might have an urgency like John, but that urgency is not gonna change you. you. You might have an honest inspection like John challenged the Sadducees and Pharisees. You might honestly inspect your life and come to an awareness of how much you fall short, but that alone is not gonna change you. Our only hope is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire from the mightier one than John. Now, spirit and fire. Spirit would have been this sense of, of creation. This is the spirit in Genesis 1 that's hovering over the waters. So spirit would have been this symbol of and new creation, renewal, and fire would have been refining, purifying. So our only hope is not just to have an urgency, though we ought to have an urgency. It's not just to have an honest inspection, but it would do us all well to take an honest inspection. But if we follow this trajectory, an urgency and then an honest inspection, and then it leads us to Christ, the mighty one, because John's whole ministry was not to point to himself, it was to point to G the one coming after him, point to Jesus, point to the Messiah. Because look, I'm baptizing you to symbolize like, hey look, I'm turning my life around and I'm looking for the Messiah that John's preaching, but man, this Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna bring a baptism of the spirit and fire. That the only way we can actually repent and completely change our lives is if we experience the inner spiritual renewal that Jesus brings. This is what salvation really is. 
So what was the response of those listening to John here in Matthew 3? Well, it says they were coming to him, being baptized and confessing their sins. Maybe you've read other parts of scripture and an alarm goes off in your head and you go, I've heard those two things together before in Acts chapter two. They're baptized, they're confessing their sins, but there's one key difference in Acts chapter two. This is the first sermon after Jesus leaves and goes to heaven, tells his disciples to wait. I have my own creative thoughts about how impatient Peter specifically was as they were told to wait. We know he was quick to speak, and so I'm imagining them sitting in this upper room and Peter going, what are we doing here? We already know what to do, we're going to preach. And they were told to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit rushes on them, like a mighty rushing wind, and they begin to share the gospel in all the languages of the people who had gathered in Jerusalem at that time for a feast. And some smart aleck in the crowd goes, you guys must be drunk. And Peter goes, I'm glad you said that. No, we're not, but let me tell you what has happened. And he shares the gospel, and it says, thousands of people came, and they said, what should we do? And he's like, you need to be baptized. (laughs) You need to receive Christ. Turn from your sin." But one key difference from Acts 2 and Matthew 3 is it says in Acts 2 that they were cut to the heart. We don't have any indication that the followers of John were cut to the heart. All we know is that they heard, they went out, and they were baptized, and that they had intended to repent. But in Acts 2, there was something internal happening. The Spirit was at work within them. That's the major difference between Acts 2 and Matthew 3 is that they were cut to the heart because the Spirit was at work. This is exactly what Jesus does. He has come to bring the rule and reign of God. The kingdom is here. He's come to bring the rule and reign of God, but he's also come to baptize us in the Spirit so that we can respond to his rule and reign in the right way. The beautiful thing about God as you read the scriptures over and over and over is that God always supplies what he demands. God is demanding a response from you. Repent. There would be a way to preach this in a way that sounds like Old Testament law. Like, hey, you need to repent and we need to get our lives together. What are the things you need to stop doing? And let's give those things to the Lord. So stop doing those things this morning. Come down here and pray. And and, and what is it you need to turn your back on? What habit do you need to quit doing? And let's pursue Jesus. And it sounds like a Christian message, but it's actually not because it's asking you to provide what you can't provide, which is inner spiritual renewal. Your own strength does not have the stamina to keep up with repentance for your whole life. It doesn't. And so while Jesus has come, and Jesus in a few chapters will echo this same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it is important to remember, there is no work for you to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. None, zero. So anytime we think, oh man, is repentance like required for my salvation? Do I? You need to understand that there is nothing God demands of you without also supplying that demand. You need to repent. I've tried. I mean, you know how many times my life, I, I, I believe I was truly converted when I was 14 years old. Do you know how many times I tried to turn my life around before 14? I mean, I, I was not like some crazy, rebellious, but I had this sense that I was without Christ. And you know how many times and my church was very committed to giving an altar call at every service we ever did saying, if you need to know Jesus right now, raise your hand or come down here and do that. And every time I would try to convince myself like, I, I don't know, like I think, I think I need that, 
but I think I can just stop doing these bad things and, and I'm here at church, how mad can God really be at me? And I tried over and, I mean, hundreds, thousands of church services to like pacify this conviction in my heart. Until I realized I don't have the strength to keep up with how much I really need Jesus and continue to repent in that way. And continue. Actually, the only way I can turn my life around is if the Holy Spirit comes in me and changes me. So I, I can't. And that's the beauty of this text here is it is kind of bookended with two aspects of, of who Jesus is. On the one hand, he is the king who has come to rule and to reign and to Isaiah 2, Bring such terror on the earth that anyone who has exalted themselves thinking they have a place of authority immediately gets humbled and cast out for the one that has authority from eternity past to eternity future, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. And at the end of this passage in Matthew 3, we see the Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit in fire in order to renew you from the inside out to refine you like gold gets put in fire to burn off all the excess that's not pure gold. Jesus comes with all authority and looks at you and says, I have all authority. But I know you can't even submit to my authority on your own. So here's my Holy Spirit to help you do it. And he baptizes which literally means immerses you in the spirit. So what is it gonna take to make you change your life? I can promise you this. Uh, if all you have is a sense of urgency, your life will not change. You might go through a season, a short spurt, and maybe those spurts get a little bit longer, but it will never be lasting and sustained change. You may even take an honest inspection. Say, you know what, I need to start going to see a counselor. And maybe, that, maybe they'll help me know more about myself uh, and I'll have some real life change. But unless the Spirit takes up residence in your heart, your life can't and won't change. But the good news this morning is that Jesus has come to do exactly that, to pour out, language of abundance, pouring out his Spirit on you. Let's pray this morning. God, we love you, and we're thankful for your word. It's a joy to read it and to study it and to proclaim it each and every week. And God, I pray, I pray, I pray for those of us who want to see our lives be different. I pray that you'd show us the true path that that takes, God. Not a path of spinning our own wheels and our own strength, but a path of actually submitting to you, receiving your Holy Spirit, and then figuring out day by day how to like Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. It is you who works in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure is what Philippians 2 says. I mean, Paul says later, earlier in Philippians, that he's confident that you who began the good work, so we didn't start it, will bring it to completion and we won't finish it. God, our lives are your work start to finish. So may you get all the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.